This is the Becker's Healthcare Podcast, created by the team of Becker's Healthcare, a multimedia company devoted to the people who power U.S. healthcare. Four new 15-minute episodes are released daily, containing industry news, analysis, and thought leadership from powerful healthcare decision makers. Support our show by leaving it a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or other platforms you use. It's a chance to tell us what you like about the show and act on your feedback. Thanks for listening. Now here's the episode. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. My name is Jacob Emerson. I'm Associate News Director in the Becker's Newsroom. And today, I'm very pleased to be joined by a special guest. Rich Weiss is president of Aetna's Southeast Region. Rich, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Jacob. A pleasure to be here. So before we get started with everything we want to ask you about, Rich, can you take us through a little bit about your background in healthcare and then what it is that you do at Aetna today? Sure. So I, I came to my role, uh, I guess, a little differently than most do. My history is that I'm a, I'm a CPA and really started my career in public accounting. I worked for a hospital system for about 11 years after that. It was actually one of my clients that I was auditing at the time. And I really fell in love with healthcare. Um, so from there, I, I started with my first payer, which was United Healthcare. Um, we had an arrangement at the facility that I was working with, with United, and uh, ended up moving from the provider side to the payer side. And... Uh, worked at United for a number of years in a finance role, uh, actually um, focusing on Medicaid. And I moved to a company called Coventry Healthcare, which uh, eventually was acquired by Aetna. And I was the CFO of their uh, Florida operation. And really the reason I made that move is because uh, previously I was focused on Medicaid and I wanted to broaden my my experience and uh, the role at Coventry Healthcare was over all segments of the business. So it included Medicaid, Medicare, the individual business, and the commercial group business. Um, and about seven years into that, uh, working for Coventry, we were acquired by Aetna and continued in finance at Aetna. I had a, a regional finance role that was the CFO for the Southeast. And eventually, um, the, the person that uh, was my mentor, Chris Chano, he, he got promoted. Uh, he was the market president for the state of Florida for Aetna. And so I took over his role and did that for about four or five years and recently uh, moved into this southeast uh, regional role. So that's, uh, that's how I ended up here. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate you taking us through that. Very clearly, you have deep experience across a lot of lines of business within health insurance. And it sounds like a lot of experience on the provider side, too, as well. And that kind of leads me right into to our first question for you, Rich. Um, we hear so much today around the term value-based care. Every company uses it in some way, shape, or form. So I want to ask you specifically, how do you, how does Aetna, define a value-based care arrangement in 2023? Yeah, so there's a lot of definitions of value-based care. I personally think that value-based care is doing what's right for people. It's funny that it's called value-based care, but it's really about keeping people healthy 
and providing the appropriate level of care when people become sick. And my personal opinion is that value is determined by better outcomes and having healthier patients and patients being satisfied with their care and the interactions they have with providers. And really when there's more collaboration amongst providers to ensure seamless care for people, that's where the true value comes in. So I would say it's very hard to actually define what value is. It's more of how the system operates and the care that people get and ultimately the results that, that we get from the system. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a great point. Um, and when you look out across the healthcare landscape today, why do you think that these, these arrangements are, are so necessary to really be focusing on? Well, today, or, or really throughout the, the history of our healthcare system, it's really all designed on fee-for-service. And our fee-for-service healthcare system is really designed to treat people once they're sick. It's very transactional in nature. It's not focused on the holistic care of an individual. And providers are really incentivized to perform procedures because ultimately that's the way they get paid. Today, there's really minimal financial incentive to do things that maintain a person's health. It's really all about providing sick care. And because of this, payer and provider relationships often become adversarial. They're really on two different sides of the coin. And value-based care really changes much of this. It shifts the focus from the quantity of services provided to the quality of the outcomes. And it encourages providers to deliver the right level of care in the right setting. It creates that collaboration and that relationship between payers and providers, which in many cases don't exist. And it helps to control costs because it incentivizes efficiency, it provides rewards to providers for keeping people healthy, and ultimately avoids unnecessary procedures. Yeah, and, and Rich, you mentioned the, the adversarial relationships that can often bubble up between payers and providers. When, when we're thinking about participating within value-based relationships or, or even crafting them from scratch, how should payers be identifying and defining key performance indicators to reward providers that participate with them within these arrangements? Yeah, that's, uh, that's really the key. And, and at the beginning of value-based care, and I've, I've been doing this for most of my career, at the beginning, it was really all about efficiency and success was really defined by the reduction of cost. So now, in addition to lowering costs, which is an important part of value-based care and an important thing that needs to happen in our healthcare system overall, value-based care arrangements include both quality and member satisfaction goals and metrics. Those are really important. And really, value-based arrangements should be designed to close gaps in care for people, prevent out adverse outcomes to begin with, and really to coordinate care across provider types and deliver a high-quality evidence-based care. So, Rich, you're basically saying it's not really just about price in these value-based arrangements. It's about quality and member satisfaction metrics as well, it sounds like. Exactly. Hmm, interesting. Now, we're, we're obviously seeing so many healthcare organizations still focused on delivering the most services at the highest cost. Um, you mentioned it yourself. It's, it's a very entrenched mindset throughout the industry. And, and these are difficult relationships to set up, value-based care, I mean. 
So how do you change an industry-wide mindset uh, coming from somebody who, who has been in this industry for so long? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough and it really ultimately will require payers and providers working together. And so, like I said before, traditional fee-for-service reimbursement gives providers the incentive to provide as much care as possible because ultimately that's how they get paid. It's a really simple model. The more care you provide, the more money you make. So the way to change that thinking is to align the incentives of both the provider and the payer. The payer, the provider should really have the incentive to deliver the right level, level of care without over or under utilizing services. And we also need to incentivize preventative care to do what's necessary to keep people healthy. And this really also goes for payers and patients as well. The payer community should remove financial barriers for people seeking preventative care because ultimately if they can't afford to seek those services, they'll, they'll get sick and, and end up within the system needing a lot of different types of service. So we need to eliminate or reduce co-payments and deductibles for people seeking care to stay healthy. And we really need to make it convenient and affordable for people. And so people can truly seek that well care that they need. Yeah, no, it's a great point. You're, you're saying that payers themselves need to take a hard look at themselves and, and remove some of these barriers to these arrangements. Um, in the vein of, of looking inward in terms of change that can happen, is there anything else you think payers should be doing right now to incentivize providers to, to join them in these value-based relationships? Where should, where should the insurance industry really be leaning in and providing better support to, to providers? Yeah, I mean, for, for any of those types of arrangements to work, there really needs to be a, a partnership between a payer and a provider. So for something to be successful, there has to be an agreement in advance of what the measure of success is. I mean, what does success look like and how, how do we get there? As payers, we really need to equip providers with actionable data. They, they need the data to support population health management Providers today are not really used to supporting a population. They're used to providing a procedure when somebody gets sick. So we need to provide that actionable data, and we need to continually help them monitor performance. And I think the most important thing we can do is to help providers identify and engage at-risk members early. So get people into disease and case management programs to help them manage care and manage people before they're sick. Absolutely. And, and the last thing I wanted to ask you, Rich, I, I had missed this question, but it's something that I really want to touch on. What is the risk continuum within a value-based care arrangement for, for payers that are involved in them? Um, and, and can you give us a, an example from your career of what this really looks like in action on the ground? Yeah, absolutely. So there, there are really many types of value-based care arrangements. They range from anything as simple as a pay-for-performance for type arrangement all the way up to joint venture organizations between providers and payers. So I'll, I'll discuss a couple of the more popular arrangements and start with the pay-for-performance that I mentioned. So to me, that's a really good entry point into value-based care. And pay-for-performance, sometimes called P4P, you may hear it referred to either way. 
So a P from B arrangement really aligns the incentives around quality and, and efficiency. What's good about P from B is it's easy to administer and easy to understand. It's a good starting point because in these arrangements, a provider is really only responsible for the services they administer. They don't have to worry about monitoring what others are doing or the, the referrals that, that they're making outward. So an example of this kind of arrangement may be providing an incentive payment to a primary care doctor. So what that would look like in action is a primary care doctor achieving a certain vaccination rate for their patients, which would be a quality measure, and also achieving generic drug prescribing rates, which would be a cost measure. So you've met uh, both parts. You've got quality and you've got costs. And if both of those are met, then the provider receives a predetermined payment over and above what they normally would have gotten. And I think those, that's a really good place to start. But in my opinion, the most impactful type of value-based care arrangement is patient-centered medical home, or PC, PCMH. So in those type of arrangements, a primary care doctor really becomes the quarterback for a patient's care. And they coordinate all care, including uh, monitoring chronic conditions, providing preventative care, collaborating with specialists and others when there are additional services needed. So this is most impactful because the primary care physician develops a long-term relationship with their patients, truly get to know them and know where they live, uh, what they do, and really everything about their health. So in this model, the total medical costs are compared to a target or a budget, and the provider receives incentive payments when quality standards are met and the cost of care is lowered. And this could take many different forms depending on the relationship between the payer and the, the primary care doctor. So I would say they fall into really three buckets. There are upside arrangements, there's shared risk, and there's full risk. So an upside arrangement, a provider receives a part of savings when costs are below a target, and a shared risk, the provider would receive a larger part of the savings when costs are below the target and would also take limited risk when the costs are above the target, or there are full risk arrangements where providers take full up and downside risk. So here where I live in South Florida, this full risk type of model has been working for over 40 years. and really is the standard for the way many primary care groups work today, particularly in the Medicare Advantage population. So think about companies like ChenMed or Oak Street. Uh, they're really two of the organizations that operate within that model. I would say in any arrangement, it's important for provider groups to take the level of risk they're ready for and comfortable with, and this is not a one-size-fits-all. Uh, so the key to success is really for payers to meet providers where they are in terms of their capabilities and risk tolerance. Make sure that provider, providers are incentivized to provide the right level of care and then provide that ongoing support and information that's so necessary for the provider to, to, to really operate successfully. Some really great advice in there, advice in there, Rich. So I really appreciate that. And for you taking us through some of the different value-based models and sharing some examples of what those look like in reality. Super, super helpful. Before we go, any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners today? I think 
that that providers shouldn't be afraid of value-based care. It can take many different forms, and they should really uh, dip their toe in the water and work with their with with their payers to 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 get involved and to truly start to understand the the value-based model and and really how it benefits patients and overall will help to lower costs. And I think without that, the the healthcare uh, costs that are emerging are just unsustainable and everybody needs to value needs to move to value-based care ultimately to make the system more sustainable absolutely well that is all the time that we have for today so rich i want to thank you for taking the time to be with us and for sharing your insights with our audience we really appreciate it yep jacob it was a pleasure nice to talk to you thank you Likewise, if you'd like to listen to more podcasts from Becker's Healthcare, you can tune in to our podcast page at beckershealthcare.com. It's so important for leaders at the top of organizations to keep learning, stay sharp, grow their networks. To help our audience better do this in a more simplified, personalized, and meaningful way, Becker's Healthcare has launched MyBHC. It's your trusted Becker's healthcare experience and more with content, connections, events, and learning opportunities. Join the community free of charge at www.my.beckershospitalreview.com and we'll see you there. Mm -hmm.